0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, will medical research in Australia deliver the outcomes we expected to? And what do we expect? A world-leading transformation in cancer care and treatment in northern Queensland, and you've probably never heard of it. A fascinating approach to searching for cancer genes by looking at well people as opposed to sick ones. And... How America hasn't necessarily made it great when it comes to your blood pressure. Last year, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association controversially lowered the level of blood pressure at which doctors diagnose hypertension, or high blood pressure. As opposed to 140 over 90, in theory, an American can qualify as hypertensive at 130 over 80. It was controversial because it could mean that up to one in two adults would be classified as hypertensive at enormous cost. The question is, would the cost in medications be offset by preventing deaths from heart attacks and strokes? That's what a group of German researchers sought to answer. And on the line from Munich is Serian Atasoy. Welcome.
0: Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: Now, this didn't come out of nowhere, this idea to lower the level. And in fact, it was a trial we reported on on the health report, the SPRINT trial, which suggested if you've got people at high high risk of heart attacks and you lower their blood pressure down really low, they do benefit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, they had two groups of blood pre- uh, blood pressure lowering, below a systolic blood pressure of 120 and below 140. And just to explain, and the showed-
1: systolic is the top number, the diastolic is the bottom yep, number. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: This study was focused on systolic blood pressure, and they showed that if you inc- uh, decrease bl- uh, systolic blood pressure below 120, Um, the participants had 43% less risk of cardiovascular events.
1: And that's the basis on which they lowered the level in the United States. But this wasn't a generally healthy group. This was people at
0: risk. Exactly. They were over 50 years old and they all already had hypertension. Um, no, actually, they all already had a systolic blood pressure of 130 or more and an increased risk of cardiovascular disease.
1: And that's not the group of people you looked at because you looked at whether you could generalize from that group to the general population.
0: Yep, exactly. So we implemented this uh, American hypertension guideline to a, um, a healthy population in Germany and we found that was oh, so it just before you a, that, give away
1: the the punchline here so they were aged what 24 to 17 there's about 11,000 of them is that right
0: yeah exactly and yeah
1: and you've been following exactly. them for some years so you didn't in fact treat their blood pressure you you were looking to see how well they fared or badly they fared with a blood pressure at that level
0: yes this was an observational study so we had over 11,000 people at baseline when we, we followed them for 10 years and we wanted to see how um, uh, implementing, implementing this hypertension prevalence would affect um, the outcomes. So firstly, the prevalence increased from 34% of hypertension to 63%. 63 Gosh. Yeah. So,
1: 63
0: so it's more percent than 1 in 2. Are, uh, exactly. Well, in this study. And so we wanted to know whether this uh, huge increase in the range of hypertension was medically justified, given the the burden that it would add to the healthcare system. And, and we found that uh, in comparison to participants without hypertension, participants with um, what is called stage two hypertension, so systolic blood pressure over 140 and diastolic blood pressure over 90. They had a 54% increased risk of cardiovascular death. And this is taking into account all other risk factors. Yeah, exactly. Taking into account other risk factors such as smoking, drinking, diabetes, um, etc.
1: So you confirmed then if you had high blood pressure or hypertension as per the European and I think Australian guidelines, then you are indeed at 50% added risk of dying of a heart attack or stroke over 10 years.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: What did, what did you find and for the group who were between 130 over 80 and 140 on 90?
0: So we did not find a significant um, increase of cardiovascular mortality in this group. And yeah, it was the, the mortality rates... The absolute rates over 10 years was uh, similar to that of people with lower blood pressure, so below 120 or.
1: And you also found that there was potentially some harm if you actually classified those people as high blood pre- as having high blood pressure.
0: Yeah, so this is this is also confirming previous studies um, that show labeling hypertension really does increase blood pressure. Because of the distress that it causes the patient.
1: Sorry, hold on so a second. Asked- a, so, just giving you the label high blood pressure increases your blood pressure.
0: Yeah, yeah, this has been <laughs> shown in numerous studies. There, yeah, just just the stress of it, I guess. Yeah. And uh, uh, so in our study also, participants who had hypertension but were not aware that they had hypertension, they had less depressed mood in comparison to participants who had hypertension but were aware and um, under treatment and so so on. So
1: I take it from this that Germany is not going to follow your American cousins?
0: It actually did not. So we had the the European Society of Cardiology had the new hypertension guideline come out in August 2019 and the major classification remains the same. Okay.
1: So for somebody listening here, um, if you're worried about your blood pressure, 130 and 80, you don't need to get treated. Uh Just change your lifestyle a bit um, to bring it down, lose weight, less alcohol, less salt, all that stuff that we know about. And if it's over 140 or 90, then that is when you start to think about treatment
0: yeah exactly yep.
1: okay so let's not follow the americans serian thank you very much for uh, for joining us
0: and <laughs> thank you for having me
1: serian atasoy is in the ludwig maximilian university of munich i'm norman swan and this is the health report here on rn abc news and cbc radio across canada medical researchers tend to focus on the sick rather than the well but perhaps a focus on the well could be more helpful and that's one of the approaches being taken at the Kinghorn Cancer Center and the Garvin Institute in Sydney, who are hunting for the genes involved in a rarish group of cancers called sarcomas. Professor David Thomas is director of the Kinghorn and he's in our Sydney studio. Welcome to the Health Report, David. Thanks for having me. Better tell us what sarcomas are.
2: Yes. So sarcomas are a rare group of cancers that affect predominantly a younger population. They affect the connective tissues, bone, muscle, fat, cartilage, and so forth. And they have a lethality of around 60%, uh, 40%. So six out of 10 people will survive a diagnosis. So they're not nice cancers to get. No, not even nice. Even with current treatment technology. And there's lots of them, so they're not all the same. No, so there are more than 50 different subtypes, which makes each individually ultra-rare. In fact, in aggregate, d- they fit the definition of the uh, Europeans and, and the Americans of rare cancers. And the, uh, and that being rare makes gene hunting hard. Yeah, that's right. And they've been understudied uh, also because they're rare and... We got interested in understanding the genetics behind sarcomas because uh, we cure them with surgery. And so anything you can cure with surgery, the earlier you get it, the more likely you are to cure a patient. So understanding the people who are at risk and detecting the cancers early is part of the holy grail of improving survival. And you're part of an international group Monitoring people with sarcoma so you get large numbers. Yeah, we're lucky enough to have started a study about 10 years ago now called the International Sarcoma Kindred Study. It started off in Australia with a modest aim to get 600 of these extremely rare patients and now we're going in 23 centres in seven countries and have almost 3,000 families enrolled.
1: But you still come up against this problem of finding the
2: right gene. So this is where this welderly population comes in. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's an interesting problem. So... Finding what you know are risk genes is a relatively simple thing. You just count what you find in your cohort. But the amazing thing about the technologies we have now is that we can find new genes. And new genes that are associated with cancer will have a greater burden of these, what we call pathogenic variants in the cohort we're studying, in this case, sarcomas, than they will in people who don't get sarcomas. Now, the problem with not getting a cancer is that cancer is so common in our community. So to take a population that doesn't get cancer, actually, you have to wait a full lifetime, more or less, to be sure that those individuals won't develop disease. And that's why we decided to focus on a welderly cohort who didn't have any cancer beyond the age of 70. So they'd to
1: 70 without cancer. Therefore, you assume that there's something
2: in their genetic profile which... Confers protection either that or they there's something missing in their genetic profile that these people who get cancers early actually have So did you then just do the genomes all the chromosomes and the the DNA sequences in these people? Yeah, so it was interesting because we were interested in, in studying diseases and the first thing we did was actually study the reverse we studied people who didn't have cancer we they didn't have heart disease or dementia, the major diseases that afflict our society. So we took two cohorts, one called the 45 and Up study, which is a very famous New South Wales study run from the Sachs Institute, uh, and we asked for patients, uh, the ordinary people who are over the age of 70. I just explain, this is where they're monitoring a population of people aged 45 and over and they're mo- following them for many years, and it's a significant percentage of that population in New South Wales. Yes, I think there's well over 100,000 of these people being followed. So we took the ones who got 70 and didn't have any cancer or heart disease or dementia. And then we also had another cohort called the ASPRI study, which is a wonderful Australian-led which study. Which we covered a few weeks ago, ah, which excellent. is a study of
1: the well-elderly to see whether or not aspirin prevents
2: heart disease. And a negative result, as you know, from a recent report. But gave you 19,000 people wonderful. who were otherwise well. Wonderful study. Age over 70. Yeah, so the b- brilliant thing about the Asprey study is that they had clinical trial-grade data on all of those individuals. They were meticulously phenotyped, as we call it. And so we combined those two to make a cohort of 4,000 elderly well Australians, and then we sequenced their entire genomes. So before we get to the sarcoma part of it, did you find anything unusual in their genetic structure? Did you find the gene of youth or the gene of (laughs) thing, or was it just it was absent so you couldn't see anything? Well, what we found was that they were indeed deplete of common genetic variation that is associated with a range of diseases. And also they were enriched for uh, common variants that are associated with healthy ageing. So exactly what you might predict if there was a genetic basis for healthy ageing. And that turns out for various reasons to be true. What are the variants associated with um, healthy ageing? These are often... uh... Let's see if we can buy them at (laughs) one. I'm afraid you have to get them at birth. So you have to have good parents. That's harder to choose. Um, But the... um, Yes, these are sort of polymorphisms that are found throughout the genome, often in regions that aren't clearly linked to function, but simply are associated uh, statistically with healthy aging in these cases.
1: Polymorphisms being little mutations here and there in in the genes. So let's go to the sarcoma. What did you find then when you compared that group to the sarcoma population?
2: Well, because we were able to compare these two groups and look for enrichment in the sarcoma group, we were able to show very clearly that there were certain genes that were strongly enriched in pathogenic variation in in people who developed sarcomas. And there were genes like P53, which uh, is the most strongly associated gene with early onset sarcoma. In fact, it's associated with the strongest cancer syndrome that we understand today, which is the Lee-Fraumeni syndrome. So that was comforting to see. It's like a master gene which controls growth. Absolutely. It's pivotal. In fact, we've learned a lot about cancer biology from study of these families who do have Lee-Fraumeni syndrome. But what was interesting were the genes that were enriched below the level of P53. And there were some genes that turned up that associated with these, uh, pro- these uh, structures within the genome called telomeres. These are like the ends of your shoelaces, which uh, hold the chromosomes together. The aglets of the human genome. <laughs> exactly. And so what happens with these aglets is they're necessary to cap and make the uh, chromosomes intact. And the interesting thing about these uh, these aglets is that they shorten over a lifespan. And we could see that actually in the elderly cohort, that as people age, their telomeres, uh, these caps on the end of the chromosomes, actually shortened over time. Now, what we found in the sarcoma cohort was that genes which were involved in those caps had a higher than expected burden of mutations. And there were actually three of the six genes in those caps, we had this excess burden, which suggests uh, the novel idea that maybe sarcomas are fundamentally... Uh, a premature ageing process. Maybe. And, in fact, when we looked at the average telomere lengths in the sarcoma cohort as a whole, it was younger than we'd expect, matched age for age. Except, ironically, for this group with the mutations in these telomere genes. And for them, the telomeres were paradoxically longer than you'd expect. Uh, so... A mystery that you've yet to uncover.
1: Yes, <laughs> so exactly. Explain. And very briefly...
2: So I've only got a few seconds left. What, what are the implications then of these findings? So there are some drugs that seem to t- uh, target particular mutations or aberrations in telomere biology. And one possibility is they won't be able to use those drugs in patients who've got abnormal telomeres. David, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. David Thomas is director of the Cancer Division at the
1: Garvin Institute and the Kinghorn Cancer Centre in Sydney. Let's stay with cancer because over the last 10 years, Northern Queensland has undergone a world leading transformation in the way cancer treatment takes place. People with cancer are receiving their treatment in small country towns that's as good and safe as they'd get in the city. The transformation involves a medical oncologist, a cancer specialist, in Townsville, who actually spends most of his time in front of a screen, looking and talking to patients and their nurses and doctors remotely. It's called tele-oncology and is delivering cancer care across vast distances. But does it really achieve good outcomes? Here's health report producer James Bullen speaking to the architect of the scheme and director of medical oncology at the Townsville Cancer Centre, Sabi Sabison. It's no
3: difference to speaking on Skype. So if you have patients in rural towns, it could even be in another big city, you use your video conferencing technology, whatever you have, talk to patients, get their histories and get someone else to examine for you, look at scans and provide your advice and opinions and service using technology. It's really simple.
4: And who is it who's doing
3: the examining at the other end? You can use nurses. And if you really want a doctor to examine... Then there's general practitioners, there's doctors in rural hospitals. It's really case by case.
4: So this has led to quite significant changes over the past few years in the way cancer care has been done between Townsville and Mount Isa in particular.
3: Ten years ago, patients from Mount Isa had to come to Townsville for uh, seeing a specialist and having first dose of their cancer treatment or even all the cycles. But over time, Mount Isa patients don't come to Townsville and we don't go to Mount Isa. They get everything that's available in Townsville and receive their care closer to home.
4: And that's not an insignificant trip. That's a 10-hour trip between Mount Isa and Townsville.
3: Yeah, and then it normally means you go got to stay overnight. This is a countrywide wide problem, it's a worldwide problem, even in Victoria, even in New South Wales.
4: What do patients think about this sort of system?
3: The number one reason why they like it is that they can get their services closer to home, like any other Australian who live in metro centres, because these people work and pay tax like any other Australian, so they deserve these things. And it's also there is significant out-of-pocket expense. And we talk about financial toxicity for cancer patients, patients from rural regional areas. Their out-of-pocket expenses are quite high. And also one of the other thing is, if they are travelling to larger centres, Normally they only travel with one escort. Here, when the service is provided locally on a video link or telehealth model, they can actually bring in more than one or two family members and the family is also involved in the care. So that's why I think the patient satisfaction is overwhelming for uh, telehealth and teleoncology models. Without the telehealth models, government will be paying and subsidizing travel, subsidizing overnight accommodation, So what we were able to show for Mount Isa was that by stopping the travel and the overnight accommodations and by providing service on telehealth model, including your infrastructure establishment cost, you still save money to the health system.
4: And is the data there in terms of for patient outcomes, how safe that is for patient outcomes? We have already shown that you can provide
3: acceptable service, including for Indigenous Australians and also we have shown that you can provide the same quality with a similar side effect profile. And for the telechemo model, we recently published in Journal of Oncology Practice our experience rolling out that model in North Queensland, the Mackay, Cairns, Cape York, and Mount Isa, and we actually shown that you can provide that chemotherapy service using a telenursing model. Cairns guys do it to Thursday Island, and we do it in Bowen, Ingham, And we have shown that the side effect
4: profile and the dose intensities, that is the quality, are actually the same. It can't all be good. There must be trade-offs here. Is something lost when you don't have a face-to-face consultation, in your opinion, between doctor and patient? So in terms of loss of face-to-face contact,
3: I think it's an old concept. Mm. In the last 10 years, the society has moved on. They use Skype and technologies for interacting with each other. And certainly all our studies have shown that the doctor-patient relationship doesn't change because it's about providing the care in a caring and compassionate manner whether it's over the distance or face-to-face. So I think it's about providing a caring care uh,
4: rather than technology itself. And you're also doing work to improve rural access to clinical trials using this system. Could you explain how that works?
3: The reason for tackling clinical trials is that there's overwhelming evidence to suggest that patients on clinical trials have better outcomes compared to patients not on clinical trials. So we thought if we really want to professionalise the workforce and improve the status of the health services, every health service now need to adopt clinical trial as their core business, and we developed the Australasian teletrial trial model. This connects smaller centres with larger centres and form clinical trial clusters, The smaller centres that will never be able to do clinical trial because of their smaller size now have the ability to provide clinical trials to their patients, taking medicine to the next level. Testing new medications. For cancers, the international recommendation or best practice is that clinical trial medications are the best treatment options. So if you don't offer clinical trials in your cancer service, you're actually not offering the best treatment option. But even if the new drug is not the same as standard practice, the fact that people are on clinical trials, they are monitored closely, they are looked after better, and their outcome overall is better. So that's why it's important that the model is rolled out so that all the health services
1: take part in clinical trials. Sabi Sabahson, who's the Director of Medical Oncology at Townsville Cancer Centre. And now to another glimpse of the future of healthcare in Australia, but this time it's medical research. As degenerative diseases, obesity and other chronic conditions rise, what solutions can research offer? Developing the next vaccine or cancer treatment will take ingenuity and innovation. But it's also about how we choose to structure our research approach and how it's funded. Here's a snippet of a panel discussion recorded at the Convention of the Association of Australian Medical Research Institutes in Canberra last month. We actually have the full panel discussion as a podcast extra on The Health Report, but here's a smidgen. The panel included Professors John Shine from the Australian Academy of Science, Kathy North from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, Ian Fraser from the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences, and the Secretary of the Federal Department of Health, Glenis Beecham. So as the Secretary of the Department, where do you want health research to have taken us?
5: In five to ten years, when you look at the pace of change around research, technology, data and digital, I think we talk about public health, population policy, there's probably bigger bangs for the buck around population policy than there is precision medicine. Childhood obesity is probably one of them. I think when you look at chronic conditions and people presenting with chronic conditions, one in four Australians, when you're over 65, three in five. So I think technology and research will help us manage much better those chronic conditions going forward. I think we talk about life expectancy, but the AHW talks about also 11 years of our life expectancy, we're unwell. So what can we do to ensure people stay well? And I think that's, that's what I'd be saying to the consumer in the street.
1: John Shine, it doesn't sound like the research agenda of very many of our research institutes. Oh, uh, I think that's a bit unkind, Norman.
6: Well, <laughs> uh, you're here to defend it's it. All, it's, I mean, the, the research agenda of the institutes is very much aligned with that. I mean, population health isn't, of course, incredibly important, but populations are made up of individuals. And so, you know, it's all part of the same spectrum. I mean, I just couldn't agree more with what Glenn has said uh, about technology. I think if we look in the next 5, 10 years, 15, 25 years, as in the past 5, 10, 15... The research is being very much technology-driven and technology is increasing exponentially. You look forward now, you know we're going to have to deal with especially big data, how to handle that, artificial intelligence, machine learning. You put all that together with genomics and biocompatible materials and stem cells, there's a lot of technology that's going to play
1: out at a population level eventually, but individually in many cases. Ian, you were the founder of the Translational Research Institute in Brisbane, which was aimed at bringing the research findings that everybody's talking about here to market, if you like, whether that be technology to improve healthcare or indeed products. But what we're finding now is that when you do this work in the laboratory, you find a new molecule to help cancer. It's being sold back to us at unaffordable sums. Have we been sold a pup? Even when we actually managed to translate the lab to product, The pharmaceutical industry is selling us it back at unaffordable amounts. I
6: guess that it depends what you regard as unaffordable, but the...
1: Well, $100,000 a year for a cancer drug that improves life expectancy by two months sounds unaffordable to me. And probably to me
6: as well. But the, the, the reality, of course, is that we have adopted a model for developing new drugs, which relies very heavily on industry taking the hard load in terms of demonstrating efficacy and created a system which is pretty much risk averse so that we have a very long gestation period for these new drugs before they get out there. We're going to probably have to change the model that we use for translating new molecules and new means of treatment into a research-based clinical practice program. And what would that look like? Well, first demonstrate safety because it will always be the highest priority for whoever's going to use the product. But once you've got past that stage, you're going to have evolutionary trials start off and see if it looks like it's worked in a particular way, combine it with other drugs if need be. We're going to have to have a health system that actually embeds research in everything that we do. And so it becomes integral part of the development of new products that every patient is basically part of some sort of clinical trial because we're going to have to make the health system more efficient if we're going to get the benefit out of all this new technology that's coming along and which is going to certainly bump the costs up if we don't. But we've just
1: seen an enormous fuss made of My Health record shaken public trust in data systems. Are we going to be able to achieve all this and bring the public along with us?
7: I think the lesson to be learnt from the negative press around My Health Record is that we all, as a research community and in partnership with government, uh, need to be very much on the front foot when it comes to community engagement. And, you know, whether it's My Health Record, big data, or in the area of genomic data, the elements of privacy and the patient owning and having control over their own data is incredibly important. So I think, uh, and particularly going forward in new areas such as genomics or the sharing of big data, public engagement first and foremost, so that we're talking more about the benefits while we're managing the risks at multiple levels so that people can feel secure about the access to and the use of their data. I think we also need to put it into the context if we're going to change the healthcare system to make it more cost-effective, we have to change our focus so we're not waiting for diseases to occur and then treating them. We're taking a much more cost-effective approach, which is about prevention, early intervention and early identification. And so whether it's around a rare genetic disorder or a common disorder that has genetic and environmental inputs, then we're going to need to... Be able to use big data from millions of individuals to make an accurate prediction for an individual, which is the basis of this. Do you
1: think you're going to be allowed to use that data in that way?
7: I think that with patient consent and probably a dynamic...
1: But you get consent from 24 million Australians I, I, for their data about what they buy in Woolworths
7: well then we also see that in on facebook and you know social media there's a lot of information that people put out there that is used without their permission but when it comes to your health data or your genomic data. We really need to be very cognizant of the wishes of the individual and use the digital technologies to have a dynamic consent platform so that people are engaged with what is happening because it's gonna be very different from now to 10 years time.
1: Kathy North is director of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And that full panel discussion from the Association of Australian Medical Research Institutes is available as a podcast extra on the Health Reports website. So please do subscribe if you haven't already. And also another podcast you might be interested in is the interview on The Music Show with Jonathan Noble about what Mozart really might have died of. We'll have a link to that podcast on the Health Reports website. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.